the Tom Sumner Program. Old fashioned radio for a new generation. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, Tom. You know that. Yay, Tom! I love it in Flint! You're very astute, Tom. Tom, easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, that's a very good question. Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm all right, Tom. How are you? Hey, lucky team. <laughs> Ciao, Tom. How are you today? That's a good question. <laughs> Hi, this is actor, comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry. What's his name? Oh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Our fellow Americans. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans. And soon, they will be available to everyone. The science is clear. These vaccines will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. They could save your life. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. That's the first step to ending the pandemic and moving our country forward. It's up to you. The Tom Sumner Program plays host to the best political roundtable on radio every Wednesday from 10 a.m. to noon. Armchair Politics features great commentary and analysis about the headlines from local, state, and national politics with an alumni of world-class pundits, plus quotes, tweets, and those weird and wacky stories we call The X-Files. If it's Wednesday, catch Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program. This is Mayor Sheldon Neely, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Show. And welcome back, everybody, as we roll into the third half of our three-hour tour known as the Tom Sumner Program. We're going to talk this hour with um, actually uh, a couple of people from the University of Michigan, the uh, uh, librarian uh, Jamie Vanderbrook is uh, joining me by phone along with uh, Professor Rebecca Modrak. They are the editors of a new book called Radical Humility, and it's a collection of essays on ordinary acts. And we're going to talk about this book in Ordinary Acts and Radical Humility <laughs> with uh, Rebecca and Jamie, who join me now by phone. Hey, welcome to the show, both of you. Thanks, Tom. Nice to be here. Thank you. How did the idea for this collection come about? Were these essays floating around to be collected, or did you hand out assignments? (laughs) Uh, This is Rebecca. (laughs) That's a great question. Um, No, you know, we sort of collected people before we collected essays. Um, I, I started to wonder about humility... Um, in 2016, um, I was thinking about it. <laughs> I, I, you know, I feel like there's something to dig into there, but we'll we'll save that. Um, yeah, well, there is a lot of. I mean, university culture has increasingly become one that um, you know is likes to likes to say you know we're leaders and best and um not necessarily apologize for mistakes or acknowledge when we're not the best and um and then i was seeing that on a national level also and 
um, and I went to Nebraska to interview farmers about their work, and um, and the word humility kept coming up as something that they valued when when they talked about a person and you know why that person was really important to them in the community. It was because they were humble, um, and so I wanted to know more more about humility and and people who modeled humility, people who cared about it or thought about it. So I reached out to Jamie. Um, at the University of Michigan Library and reached out to two other people, a philosopher and a, a marketing scholar who, who researches pride. And, um, and then we started assembling this list of people who, who do think about or who practice humility in their, in their lives. And, and Jamie, what did, what did you think about this idea and how did you go about collecting people? Sure. Um, well, initially I was caught a bit off guard, I think, because, <laughs> um, <laughs> well, I, in my work as an art librarian, I focus mostly on the community of the Stamp School of Art and Design, um, of which Rebecca is a member. And um, humility is not a topic that I had ever talked about with anyone else before in terms of research. So I was surprised initially, but um, I realized that I was thinking about humility a lot in my own life because I had just become a parent. So uh, I was <laughs> that, like that makes launching. you humble sometimes. <laughs> exactly. I mean, certainly it in- introduces humility into your own um, identity, I guess, just by like brute force. But <laughs> but also just like in thinking about, you know, the values I wanted to raise my daughter with. Um, and so Rebecca and I started having conversations. And one thing that was really important to us initially was that we not just invite other people who work at colleges and universities from around the country or even the world, but that we focus on bringing a really diverse group of people together um, for kind of a conversation about humility. Rebecca, you wrote an essay uh, for the book um, called Free Yourself by Choosing the Plain Crackers. And that, that got my attention because I am forever arguing that the originals were good enough. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. I agree with you. Um, I mean, I think I was struck in Nebraska by the difference. So, I mean, when I the way I grew up, I grew up in Pittsburgh, and and there we had a single cracker. I mean, I think we had um, um, saltines, like my mom bought, and um, and then you know in Ann Arbor, um, you start to get used to this kind of like uh, you know culture that where like you need to have. 60 different crackers in the cracker aisle and you know they're like handmade crackers and spelt crackers and sea salt crackers and so when we went to Nebraska I went into the grocery store there the single grocery store in the town um, the first time we went shopping and you know there were four crackers in the cracker aisle and at first I was I was kind of like wow like well they don't have our crackers and um, by the time by the end of the summer I was almost like felt like this kind of like overwhelming fear of heading back to Ann Arbor and facing the cracker aisle again in the grocery store. <laughs> Too many choices. I, you know, I, choices, I can't remember yeah. if, if it was a, a comedian I saw that observed uh, uh, the, the notion of um, turkey bacon. And <laughs> he, was, he was concerned that, that turkeys might have an identity crisis or something and, <laughs> and that they should really just be themselves <laughs> that's great and it's yeah. it's kind of the the same 
the same thought, the same notion. My kids, when they were young, they would do this thing. It used to make me crazy. They, you know, you go to a fast food restaurant and you have, um, they give you a cup and you go fill the cup yourself with soft drink. And they would put a little bit of every flavor in the same glass. <laughs> Yeah, my son has done that also. <laughs> yes, <laughs> the first few times. Right, you want one of everything. Or maybe it's a, like the scientist in us who wants to experiment and, and come up with like a whole new flavor. Why the name radical humility? Those, those terms seem almost uh, at odds with each other. Um, well, so... You know, I think it's for several reasons. One is, um, you know, humility, in some ways, a lot of people think of the term as Jamie was describing when, you know, first came up, and it seemed like humility. Wow, that's not a word I hear very often. And um, one of the essayists in the book did a study of, um, like, when humility was a popular word, when it was used the most, and it was, you know, like more than 100 years ago. Um, So it seems like an antiquated term, like it's not really relevant anymore. Um, and in part, like he points out in this essay, that's kind of like a good thing in terms of like how humility used to be defined in many ways. Like humility was often considered in terms of subservience, um, keeping somebody in their place, which is really like a notion that's hopefully gone out of date. Um, and so, but you know, the value of humility, like the you know the benefits of humility in terms of of like the meaning and the connection that you can have to other people to not thinking of like only yourself, but thinking of others, um, the understanding like the limits of your own knowledge or um, of what you can control, like all of these things that are really beneficial like, as they understood in Nebraska are really relevant right now. I mean, especially right now. And so, you know, I think for us radical was, was there were two thoughts to it. One was that, um, it's not a word that you hear, and so it's sort of radical to hear it. And the other is that some of the things that people in the book are doing are really ordinary things, like things that, you know, you tell kids when they're young to do, and apologize for your mistakes, um, or ask questions if you don't know something. And yet we rarely see adults doing these things. So um, they're, like, ordinary, and yet they're also, um, unfortunately, they're radical. And and I I also know that Jamie had a uh, an essay included in the book called A Library is for You, and being a librarian that seems a little bit self promoting. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess the whole idea is that it's um, not about me, right? It's about you. <laughs> um, so my essay, I mean, initially, honestly. I had worked on this project for, you know, I, I guess I'm not sure how long it had been at the, that point, a year probably before we had everyone actually come um, to be with us in our um, uh, campus in Ann Arbor. And I just really struggled about what on earth I was going to contribute to the conversation. Um, we either had invited people who were experts on humility from different fields, like psychologists or philosophers, or people who we knew had something to contribute from either like a life experience they had had or um, like the perspective of of a particular line of work or um, like a story that they could share. And for me, like I'm as a librarian, I'm so used to helping other people with their research that 
I was a little lost about like what I would say to the group. So my essay was kind of a struggle. Um, I think in part because, you know, I think we don't really think of librarians as being special. <laughs> I guess either humble or self-promoting, like neither librarians are, you know, everyone knows what a librarian is, but people don't think about that really beyond like checking books out probably from your local public library. Um, so I wasn't sure that there was like a natural path for my essay at all. Well, it it, it seems a, a little dry and sort of research-based, a, a collecting of facts, not really generating any conclusion about those facts necessarily. Um, right. And this is a little parenthetical to our conversation, but Jamie, I do want to ask you about libraries in general and where they're going in this age of technology you know so many people do their own research from their practically from their mobile devices but certainly from mm -hmm. their laptops by you know googling everything um right the library used to be google actually right that's, that's totally. where you went to find everything are they are they just now satellites for you know these various platforms or is real research still being done in libraries yeah that's such a good question i think the answer to that question is really different for academic libraries like you know colleges and universities and then for public libraries um, public libraries are having real renaissance right now um, uh, our library here in ann arbor and i should add that i'm on the board of the ann arbor district library so i'm a little bit biased and I might get a little bit like unhumble right now, but I mean, it's a great library system that even it, we haven't actually, it's been just over one year since the doors have been open to the public to come into the space, but we have had, you know, an incredible amount of engagement with the community digitally. Um, like parents who are stuck at home with their kids use the story times daily. There's like a whole series of programming that's offered teaching people how to do like different cooking things or different crafts. So libraries are about sharing. And so it depends on what the community wants to share. And during COVID, like what the community is able to share, like we're sort of less able to share what we used to be able to share. So I think public libraries, as long as they continue to embrace, you know, not only like the historically books and things that people associate with them, but the new things that communities want to share, I think are, are doing great, you know, it doesn't harm them at all that you do a lot of your research in Google. You still want to connect with other humans and share things with them in your community. But and I think academic libraries are a little bit different. Yeah, are, are the uh, um, is is the goal of of collecting things and and being sort of an archive still intact? Yeah, absolutely. So academic libraries are really different. Like I actually used to work at the public library and what we would acquire is like super based on what the community wants right now. We didn't think very far in the future in terms of buying something so someone could use it in 50 years because if people are using it, it's going to get used up. But in an academic context, we are absolutely thinking about the future. I mean, I think if you think about your data being owned by all these different companies and all the data that's important to you in the world, um, what happens if one of those companies goes out of business? You know, they have a very different right. business model than a library. So libraries, I think, will continue Jamie, to be relevant because they protect I, things. Jamie, I hate to interrupt, but I have to take a short break here. Um, Rebecca, Jamie, can you stick around so we can talk some more? Yeah, of course. Sure.
Okay, we'll let our broadcast partner squeeze a few words in, and then we'll be back with Hello, more. Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is working to help keep you and your community safe from the threat of novel or new coronavirus. If you have traveled to a country with a widespread outbreak of COVID-19, CDC recommends you stay home and check your health for 14 days after returning to the United States. Take your temperature with a thermometer two times a day. Watch for symptoms like fever, cough, and trouble breathing. And if you feel sick or have symptoms, call ahead before you go to a doctor's office or emergency room. Tell the doctor about your recent travel and your symptoms, and avoid contact with others. For more information, visit cdc.gov. Hi, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. If you like talk radio that makes you think without telling you what to think, check out our whole show weekdays from 9 a.m. to noon Eastern at TomSumnerProgram.com. Selected segments are also available on this and other radio stations, but you can hear us anytime. Daily editions of the Tom Sumner Program repeat online all day and night on the show's website. Past shows can be found in the website archives. My long-format interviews with New York Times best-selling author photographers and writers from National Geographic, as well as artists, musicians, candidates, and elected officials are made possible by listeners like you. Support the Tom Sumner Program and Civilized Talk Radio. Visit our website at TomSumnerProgram.com and become a member. You can make a one-time gift or become a sustaining patron by taking the link to the Tom Sumner Program Patreon page. Thanks for listening and thanks for your support. Have you lost your job and your health care coverage due to COVID-19? You're not alone, and Genesee Health Plan can help. I called, and they provided health care enrollment over the phone with Medicaid, HealthCare.gov, and Genesee Health Plan. They made sure I had access to doctor visits, my prescriptions, and more. Getting health care coverage can be confusing. You don't have to do it alone. Get help with GHP. Call 844-232-7740 or go to GeneseeHealthPlan.org. We're in this together, and together we'll get through it. Imagine a journey down a picturesque riverway. Imagine your Flint River, 142 miles of recreation, natural beauty, and precious resources. The Flint River is a vital resource that is available for all to use and enjoy. The river and its ecosystem provide unlimited recreational opportunities and natural beauty while supporting wildlife in a vibrant landscape. We all have a responsibility to protect and preserve this precious resource. Learn more at FlintRiver.org or call the Flint River Watershed Coalition at 810-767-6490. Technical assistance for the Tom Sumner program is provided by Swiftlet Technology. 
engineering and IT services at swiftlink.technology. The Tom Summer Program.com. Hello, this is State Senator Jim Ananick, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Hey, welcome back, everybody. We continue my conversation with uh, Rebecca Modrak and uh, Jamie Vanderbrook from the University of Michigan. They are the co-editors of a book called Radical Humility, a collection of essays on ordinary acts. Um, welcome back, both of you. Uh, thanks for sticking around. Sorry to make you sit through all that. No, thanks. Nice to be here. Um, Jamie, just before the break, we were talking a little bit about uh, the changing um, nature of libraries in the in the world of technology, and you were pointing out that uh, they they're still valuable, especially academic libraries like the one you're in charge of at uh, the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, um, as as being the uh, our official historical archive. Right, absolutely. So, you know, we, we definitely collect things for, for the community. And we're a public, the University of Michigan is a public institution, so we view that mission very broadly. Um, so, you know, we collect things for people to use now for research, and we also collect things knowing that we need to keep them for the future. And we collect things that people consider to be important, um, and we collect things that people to consider to be like um, insignificant or uh, ephemeral in nature. So, you know, I think that that's one thing that's really cool about a library that you can find things that are, um, you know, at our library, for example, we have um, a letter that was handwritten by Galileo. So, you know, that's something that's completely irreplaceable. Um, nothing else in the world is quite like that object. But then we also have boxes of protest buttons from the 1970s and 1980s and um, like uh, romance novels or <laughs> things like that. And I think one thing that's cool about a library is that we are interested in all the things that people think and make and do. Um, and we want to provide access to all of those things. And it's sort of like this, um, there's this, uh, I guess, egalitarianism that's present in a library that I think is really cool. Rebecca, the the book, and I've mentioned the title a few times, Radical Humility, Essays on Ordinary Acts. Um, what What is an ordinary act, and, and how do they contribute to humility? Um, well, let's see. That makes me think of one of the essays. I mean, that makes me think of a lot of essays in the book, but one in particular is by Kevin M., um, so Kevin was working at a tech startup company, and he was laid off from work. And he started applying out for jobs. He sent out you know, dozens of resumes, um, couldn't get a job, was sitting in a coffee shop one day working on his resume. Um, and he looked across the street. There was a restaurant there. So he walked across, and he turned in his resume to them and, and applied for a job. And they, they gave him one right away in the kitchen, um, you know, working as a kind of like line cook or prep cook. And, um, and he describes in the essay the difference between the startup culture um, in the tech world and the culture of the kitchen where people were really honest with each other um, and direct. Um, There's a lot of kind of like banter um, 
but also he said, you know, he he would be cutting something, someone would walk over, and they would say to him, um, you know, that's here's how you can cut that onion a little bit better. Here's how you could clean your knife a little bit better. Um, and so there's this expectation of humility, of like accepting um, that I don't, you know, know these things, or I might not know these things as well as I could, and um, and accepting advice, which he said was very different from the startup culture where. Um, you know, things were not, communication was not as direct. Things were decided by committee or like by three committees down the road. Um, and so maybe you heard, you submitted something, an idea, and then heard about it much later, um, feedback through kind of like group think sort of response. I, so that's, that's one of the things I think of when I think of ordinary acts, just things in our normal everyday life um, that involve a kind of humility and where, you know, in that instance, it was a kind of simple thing, right, to both offer um, a critique of his like skills, but also for him to accept it. But it, you know, it made a huge difference in terms of like the camaraderie of the kitchen, um, in terms of like his ability to do his job, um, and their ability to like accept each other in that place. Are humble people or people who have a, uh, a significant amount of humility less likely? to do grand things? Um, so this is Rebecca. That's such a good question. Are they less likely to do grand things? I, I don't think so. Um, not at all. I, I think maybe they're less likely to boast about the grand things or um, to kind of, um, you know, sort of like... Uh, maybe like allow their ego to be wrapped up in in the like the promotion of those things but no i i think you know like for example one of the essayists in the book um well so he did sort of like horrible things and grand things um he was a lawyer for 20 years in private practice defending hospitals um against medical malpractice and um one day he went home and said to his wife um I I'm, I need to leave this. I like, can't do this anymore. I'm gonna. Um, so he joined a hospital as its chief legal officer, and he said, from now on, um, if somebody makes a mistake, a medical mistake, we're going to um, we're going to acknowledge that this happened. We're going to apologize to the people who are affected, and then we're going to you know do something to change um, our process so that these mistakes don't happen again. So, I, I mean, I think that's a huge thing in terms of what re- the amount of, like, relief it brought to families, um, the safety it brought to the hospital, the, the, like, um, the way that it allowed doctors to really, like, be honest with their patients and practice medicine and stop seeing their patients as potential, you know, liabilities. Um, so it brought doctors and patients closer together. I mean, I think that's a really grand thing. It is um, a grand thing. Know. In fact, it's it's very radical when you consider that most of us almost instinctively want to disavow any mistakes and and sort of hide from, you know, uh, admitting mistakes. And and what tremendous humility in the ability to say we make mistakes. Right, absolutely. This is Jamie. Um, I think that that's one of the the sort of contradictory natural forces that are at play when it comes to humility, um, and I think it has a lot to do with 
raising um, young people too, like the next generation of people, um, because I think the way that we behave around children, um, and this is demonstrated by a couple of different essays in the book, um, it has a big impact on the way that they conduct themselves later in life. And I think it's a lot easier to, to do that, to admit that you made a mistake if you have seen other people who are to you powerful um, do that and then practice it as you're growing up. And if instead you're encouraged to always be perfect and to never admit when you've made a mistake and all the adults around you also don't admit them when they make mistakes. And that's true then also of like national leaders and things like that. I think then you can see how it would seem like you'd be this like very striking failure amongst all these other perfect people if you admitted vulnerability. But by contrast, if if that became something that you practiced and other people practiced, uh, it wouldn't be such a big deal. When you were um, first planning this book, and and you referred to it as collecting people before collecting the essays, <laughs> yeah. But did you set up? Um, what, was there criteria in mind early on? And, and you know, I, I sort of jokingly said, did you give out assignments? But, you know, in a way you were giving out assignments. Were there, um, was there criteria for what you wanted the submissions to be? Well, like I said, uh, this is Jamie again, at the beginning, we really were very concerned with the diversity of the group. Um, so like racial and ethnic diversity, but also just like diversity of sort of perspective or profession or even age of the person contributing. Um, and so that was really important to us. Some of the people, it was really easy to ask them to talk about it because that's what they do professionally. So the people who study or research humility in an academic context are really used to um, part of their work is just sharing what they have learned with other people and sort of questioning that together. And so to them, it was like really simple to say, oh, sure, I'll come talk with some other people about humility. That sounds great. But to a lot of the people who don't participate in this academic context, it was a little bit of a harder sell. I mean, the lawyer that Rebecca mentioned, <laughs> I think he had to be approached a couple of times to like to be encouraged that, you know, we really do want to hear about this story. And it makes sense to us in this context. And you know, don't worry that you don't feel like you don't have anything to say about humility specifically. We had to to say that to a number of different people. Well, it's always a negotiation with lawyers. <laughs> yeah, <it's> true. <laughs> um, this just the, the idea of this is is um, is just so incredible, and in, in, um, it. I'm not, it's it's so different from anything that I've seen. There isn't really much published about humility as um, as an umbrella topic. Yeah, um, some of our contributors, like Jen um, Wright, who's a psychologist, she's written a book about um, humility, but I think it is meant for an, for an audience that's more scholarly, um, and more, you know, who has a kind of background in philosophy. Um, and a lot of the books, when we, when we did some research early on, a lot of the books, as you say, were um, very disciplinary specific, so, you know, meant for philosophers or psychologists. Um, I mean, there are, there are a few books and a few writers who speak to it um, in a kind of, in a, in a more sort of like, you know, ordinary life kind of way. 
Um, but it's pretty it's pretty unusual, and I you know like that was one of the things that we were most interested in that that we could kind of span this bridge between um, you know abstract theory and um, you know like thinking of humility as something that's you know, related to Socrates and the ancient Greece, Greeks and um, thinking of humility as something that exists you know in our lives today like in in our homes in kitchens in in libraries and in all of these ordinary places. And you know, and it sounds like when we talk about ordinary acts, that they there might not be big ideas, and yet, um, Lynette, uh, I'm not even sure if I know how to say her name, um, Clementson. Yes, Lynette. Uh huh. Wrote a piece called "Journalism in an Era of Likes, Follows, and Shares." And that's that's such a, a serious and important thing about how we're we're getting and using information. Right. Yeah. So Lynette runs a um, fellowship program for journalists, and so every year, twenty journalists will take a temporary pause in their careers and um, come to the university to um, study something else, something unrelated to journalism, and. Um, but that can expand their thinking in some way. And she said that um, every year the thing that they most want to talk about is the pressure that they feel to be, you know, essentially like social media presences when what they were trained to do is to really be, you know, to, to kind of fade into the background so that they can make the subject of their story more visible. And so there's a real contradiction there. And one of the things I loved, and this this isn't in her essay, but it was something that she talked about um, with us early on was she talked about the way that in um, print media and the newspaper, humility was built into what she called the architecture of the paper. So when you read the op-ed section on one side, on one spread, you read, you know, an issue, um, an argument for the issue. And then on the other side of the spread, you read the argument against the issue. And so humility was part of the newspaper um, but now, right, when you, you know, when you get your news from your Facebook um, feed and it's all of your friends only posting the pro issue um, or one side of the issue, you're really missing out part of the story. And, and you know, often I, just because I'm a, a little bit of a um, prankster, I will pick some very controversial topic and post an article that I've seen on it. And the only comment I'll make is, hmm. Mm. And then I just watch as people add comments fighting with each other over whatever this thing is. And it always seems so silly to me. You know, I sit back and watch these people just beat up on each other. Yeah. and that's a, But that's interesting that they have an argument. I mean, they're not, they're not all feeling the same way. They don't all have the same perspective, even though they're all connected through you. Well, I have a pretty eclectic friends list. <laughs> yeah, that's great. I think that's, been, that's a real strength of your, um, you know, of the group then that you've brought together that they can have those debates. Um, that's one of the things. There's a beautiful essay in the book by Agnes Collard, who's a philosopher, who talks about um, the value of the Socratic debate and um, that you need two people in order to have that. So Socrates would, you know, go around pro provoking people, you know, saying, like, well, what do you know about such and such? Like, oh, you say you know a lot about, you know, cheese or whatever it is. 
And um, they would say, like, well, here's what I know, and he would ask questions, and, you know, till he got to the limits of their knowledge. Um, and she writes about that, you know, it, it took two people to have that conversation and how important that is. So, yeah, it sounds like um, that sounds like a real strength of your of your the groups you're bringing together. And a lot of it has to do with the fact that I, I strive for a lot of um, variety and uh, diversity in terms of the people that I have on the show. So it attracts people from different points of view and different disciplines. And, and it, it's something that seems perfectly normal to me. That's really great. I mean, I think that another thing that we found through working on the book is that um, it's not all that common for people to have uh, constructive conversations that involve people they disagree with. And so I think providing environments in which, like Rebecca was saying with the newspaper, in which there is kind of like both sides of an argument that are kind of coming together and being presented together or having an opportunity to be socialized together is huge. One of the researchers that we work with, um, uh, Aranda Jaira Rikumi, he, he actually mostly works on happiness, which is kind of an interesting topic as well. Um, but he has found that people, like in that kind of comment zone, um, that that's like very tense for them. So they're like less likely to change their minds about something. They kind of like dig in their heels and, you know, present their side. But like they're always on the either offense or defense. It's less like likely for them to like change their minds in that context. But, you know, probably when they're speaking with each other in a more like when they feel more comfortable or, um, you know, if they're friends with you in real life, they might be more likely to to listen um, to a different opinion and, and potentially adjust their own. So I think about that a lot in my um, just kind of confronting this world that we're living in right now where there's such a divide politically that it almost feels like insurmountable sometimes. You know, it's it's funny. There's a there's a quote that is kind of a favorite of mine, and it's been attributed to Abraham Lincoln, who was being questioned by a journalist of the day about a position he had held a year earlier and now held a different position. Uh, you know, he was basically being accused of flip flopping, and his response was, uh, "I like to think I'm a little smarter today than I was yesterday." Wow. Yeah, that's, that's, that's great. A, like, that's great. Yeah. And it said so much to me about the ability to change your mind if given new information. Yeah, that, I mean, that's what you need in a president, right? Somebody who um, who has empathy, who, you know, is willing to go move and shift outside of his own sphere and range of thought into into somebody else's as he's affected by, you know, other people's perspective. And is teachable. But is teachable, right, yeah. There, um, one of the essays in the book by Troy Jollimore, um, who's a philosopher, he writes about a, his favorite philosopher is a woman named Philippa Foote, who um, wrote a famous um, essay in the 1970s. And then in the 1990s, she was asked to republish the essay, and she said, well, I'll only republish it if I can essentially introduce it by saying how much I d disagree with myself and what I wrote. <laughs> and, 
And, That's um, wonderful. And Troy, in his classes, he'll give this example, and he said often he'll always have students who say, um, you know, exactly what you, what you just said to him about, you know, oh, she's a flip-flopper, or she should, have, she should have stuck to her convictions, or, you know, she was kind of wishy-washy. Um, but, yeah, it's, you know, like the whole point is that here's a person who did this piece and um, still is, like, still is changing and thinking and able to, um, you know, her, her thinking is evolving and she's strong enough to, you know, say, you know, like, I don't believe this anymore and here's, here's why. Well, this is uh, a really fun idea for a collection and, and I can't think, I, I, I can't seem to remember seeing anything very much like it at all. Um, was it tough getting this stuff together and collected and ready for uh, publishing during the pandemic? You know, it's funny. That was the part that was the simplest. <laughs> I think it was much harder to take what was initially a conversation that was held in person with a, like a relatively small group of people uh, and translate that to something that would be fun and interesting to read um, in kind of like no matter whether you read things about humility all the time or never at all. So I think like that was much harder, like kind of bringing out what was what we found so powerful or moving about what Rick Boothman or what Lynette Clements had said in person um, and translating that to a collection of essays that that took a long time. Um, and the involvement of some, you know, really helpful people, like an editor we worked with, um, a writer named Mike Kazai was really helpful. But like um, the pandemic, it's like one of those things where if you're working on a project that's already with people who are all over the country, like the pandemic made the working relationships like more or less the same because they had always had to be, you know, kind of distant. Um, so it, it's funny that you asked that question. Well, my guests are uh, Rebecca Modrak, a professor from uh, the University of Michigan, and uh, Jamie Vanderbrook from the uh, library at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. And they have a book called Radical Humility, Essays on Ordinary Acts that they uh, uh, edited. They uh, collected essays from a variety of people, and it's uh, and it's fascinating. And we're just about out of time. Um, Rebecca, Jamie, I always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about what we've been talking about. Obviously, the book is a great place to start, but it might be interesting for people uh, to find out more about you and your work, past, present, and future. Um, do, you, do you both have websites? Uh, I, this is Rebecca. I have a website. It's my name, um, which has all of my artworks on it, and um, and a, a lot of them. I mean, it's are very different from from this book in many ways. In other ways, they're very similar. Um, a lot of them also sort of involve bringing diverse viewpoints and people together, um, like bringing artists together to create artworks on eBay or. Um, actions like that. So there's, I think the the commonality between the works has more to do with the process than always the content. And Jamie, do you have a website? Uh, I don't have a website, uh, but you can find me at the University of Michigan Libraries 
website, or I'm also I'm active on Instagram, and my handle is Vanderbrarian, so you can find me there. <laughs> Very good. Um, well, we, we have to wrap it there. I, I'm, I'm sorry, I've got a break coming up here in just a moment, but thank you both for spending time and, and sharing some of these thoughts. Thank you. Thank you so much All for right. having us. Hey, <laughs> this is the Unknown Comic, and guess what? You're listening to the Tom Sumner Show right now. And now, and now too, and even now. Our lives have been turned upside down by COVID-19. When a vaccine becomes available, it's critical that all of us get it. What we do as individuals will impact everyone's health, including those who can't get the vaccine. We won't get through this unless everyone takes part. Now is the time to get up to date on all recommended vaccines for both kids and adults. Experts say it's more important than ever for everyone to get their flu vaccine this year. And if you're older, you should get both the flu and pneumonia vaccines, since both illnesses can make COVID-19 even worse. Vaccines are available at a lot of convenient places, so be an example for friends and loved ones and encourage them to get vaccinated too. We all want to reunite, travel, and get back to school and work. But that means we all need to get on board. This is the time to do what's right for each other. Get vaccinated. It's our best shot. Hey, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. Catch me and a gaggle of great guests weekdays on Our Voices Radio, WFOVLP 92.1 FM. You never know who might drop by. Joe By from the Blue Hawaiians. Dan Serling. Congressman Dan Kildee. Alexander Zondrick. Actor, comedian Joe Napote. Woodrow Stanley. U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow. State Senator Jim Ananick. Comedian Brian McCree. The unknown comic. Mark Farner. And Tom, I want you to know Tom's my friend. You, you've always got great questions, and you know the material, and you, and you care about it, and it's, uh, it's that's impressive. Nice to be with you, Tom. And I admire you for reading all of that. I haven't read the whole thing. I've got willing to admit that. <laughs> hey, Tom, this is my favorite interview all It's like having coffee at the kitchen table with you. Tune in Monday through Friday from 9 to 12 right here on 92.1 of a Kind. And check out our website at TomSumnerProgram.com. East Village Magazine is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint. With support from grants, donations, and advertisers, East Village Magazine's talented local writers give you an in-depth look at local news, issues, and people that make Flint, Flint. Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community-focused and community-supported. Discoveries. They happen when we least expect them in places we thought we knew. And discoveries have a way of teaching us a little more about ourselves along the way. Welcome to Flint and Genesee County. Where up north meets down south. Home to Michigan's largest county park system and a vibrant culture. A place filled with discoveries we've yet to make. Throughout acres of beautiful lakes, wetlands, and woods. And in the diverse city beyond. Where the uplifting melodies of gospel choirs fill the air. Where the work of renowned artists color the galleries and museums. Where the fresh fruits and vegetables at the downtown farmer's market awaken our senses and where the cultural center and planetarium broaden our view of the world. Let's spend a few days enjoying the wonders of Flint and Genesee County, where the joy of discovery is pure Michigan. 
Your trip begins at michigan.org. MTA Flint is nationally recognized for continually seeking to provide sustainable, reliable, and cost-efficient transportation for individuals throughout the region. Through work-related and non-emergency medical transportation and your ride services, MTA is moving people with future and alternative fuel technologies. More information about MTA Flint and specialized services is available at mtaflint.org. The uneasy feeling Rod Serling is behind one of those doors. Rod Serling. Rod Serling. What's this, the Twilight Zone? Where is everybody? I would have been headed for the Twilight Zone. Twilight Zone. If I go any lower, I'll be in the Twilight Zone. All right. Oh, but Jethro's right at home in the Twilight Zone. <laughs> I'm in the Twilight Zone. Now, having made this little jaunt into the Twilight Zone, I got a feeling something strange is about to happen in the Twilight Zone. Hi, this is Ann Serling, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Welcome to this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program. When John Henry was a little baby, sitting on his daddy's knee, he picked up a hammer and a little piece of steel and said, Goo 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 not the right version. He was only six months years old. Oh, well, he cut it at six. Tommy. The real, the ethnic, you know the real version. When John Henry was a little baby, sitting on his daddy's knee. His daddy picked him up Threw him on the floor and said, This baby's done wet on me. <laughs> I, I, I apologize. Oh, I one more chance. One more chance is all you get. See this pin? It says, Think ethnic. You gotta think ethnic and sing ethnic to ever earn this pin. John Henry was a little baby Sitting on his daddy's knee He picked up a hammer and a little piece of steel And said this hammer be the death of me, Lord, Lord Hammer be the death of me Yeah, when John Henry was just a little tyke He picked up a piece of steel and a hammer it seemed like he knew all the time, down deep inside, that he was going to work on the railroads. And there was a big story waiting for him to arrive on. Why was a little boy used to go around hammering on things? His daddy bought him a little hammer. Let's go around hammering the tables and hammering the fixtures. We <laughs> used to get a licking all the time to go up and hammer on the front door. Hammer on the chairs. Yet as John Henry grew, he grew in size, and he grew in stature, and he grew in his mind, his horizons grew. He started going out and got a bigger hammer. Started walking around town hammering things. Hammering trees, people's fences, the fire hydrants. 
Why John Henry could just go around hitting one fire hydrant with one mop. Yeah. All the dogs in town hated John Henry. Well, the whole story goes is that when he grew to full size, he could drive steel on the railroad, drive those spikes in the ground faster than any ten men. People started talking about John Henry. Why is the fastest man that ever drove steel on the railroad? And the whole story of John Henry really starts the day the captain told John Henry something. John Henry said, Tell me something, Captain. <laughs> then the captain said, John Henry, I'm gonna bring me a steam drill round. I'm gonna bring me a steam drill out on the job. I'm gonna pop that steel on down, Lord, Lord. Pop that steel on down. Sure enough, next day they had a steam drill out on the job. Big red steam drill, shiny smokestack sticking up in the air. Well, they had old John Henry over there, muscles rippling in the sun, sweat running off in gimlets. <laughs> Ringlets. Well, the captain, head of all the railroad workers, looked over at that steam drill and smiled. Then he turned over and he looked over at John Henry. His beady little eyes. He snarled over John Henry. Hi there, John. <laughs> well, John Henry didn't say nothing. Just spit on his hands, picked up those two nine-pound hammers, walked slowly over towards that steam drill, spit on the steam drill. Then went over and spit on the captain. <laughs> well, it got to be about 12 o'clock starting time for the race. Every railroad man in the county was out there that day because they knew if John Henry lost that race, they were all out of a job. Well, it got to be starting time for the race. John Henry is up there at that starting line. That steam drill was up there at that starting line. Big smokestack sticking right up in the air. A little bit of spit on it. <laughs> well, the captain walked up to the start line. I swear you could hear a pin drop that day. He took out his pistol and pointed up in the air. John Henry spit on it. Actually, this was about the greatest race in the history of man. The race between a man and a machine. He pointed that pistol up in the air and shot it off. Bang. That started that race. 
Smart, I thought he could be a steam drill. <laughs> what a thing for crying out loud. John Henry said to the captain, to the captain, by God, I ain't no fool. Before I'll die with a hammer in my hand, I'm gonna get me a steam drill too, Lord, Lord. Get me a steam drill too. Get me a steam drill too, Lord, Lord. This was another comedy spotlight on the Tom Sumner program. it up for today's edition of the Tom Sumner program. I want to say thanks to all of my guests, uh, including Rebecca Modrak and Jamie Vanderbrook from University of Michigan, the editors of a new book called Radical Humility, Essays on Ordinary Acts. And before that, we uh, talked with the author. Uh, she's a um, uh, National Geographic writer and editor Erica Engelhaupt, and she's written a book called Gory Details, Adventures from the Dark Side of Science. And we started out this morning talking about how to uh, avoid Parkinson's disease with, uh, oh, who did we have? Uh, Dr. Ray Dorsey. Yeah, I almost forgot Ray's name. Silly me. Well, be sure and join us tomorrow. We have uh, Armchair Politics. Uh, Bobby Clayton Walton joins the roundtable. Good night, everybody. The Tom Sumner Program is a live variety show. We want to acknowledge all of our guests who play such an important role in the show and our cavalcade of cohorts from coast to coast for their regular contributions. Most of the musical accompaniment was provided by people in or from the Flint area. 
Many of the pre-recorded portions of the Tom Sumner program are made possible by Flint's own Steve McComb and Pencil Sketch Recording in Nashville, Tennessee. If you have comments, questions or suggestions about the show, find us on Facebook. This is Prue Clearwater. Join us next time for another edition of the Tom Sumner Program. And thanks for listening.